feeling glad I got sunshine In a bag I'm useless Not for all the future is coming on and Well, welcome to Michael and us. I'm Will Sloan, here as always with... Luke Savage. Welcome back, everyone. Just if I can give people a little behind the scenes, we spent about 20, maybe 30 minutes uh, with me uh, moving to various parts of the apartment to try to get the internet connection to work. This is the glamorous life of a transatlantic podcast. What do you think, Luke? Yeah, well, I think uh, I'd like to have a word with uh, the person who runs the uh, Gore Lieberman Studios in Amsterdam. (laughs) Luke coming out hot and heavy already. So Luke is actually about to take a vacation, a week-long vacation. Uh, We are recording this before the 2022 midterms. Uh, Hopefully it will be up before the 2022 midterms as well. But if it's not, uh, fearless predictions. (laughs) Well, yeah, so we'll talk about the uh, the midterms, the results of the midterms, I should say, on uh, next week's show. Um, I am going to be away, as Will said, this week. I'm planning to disappear into the Canadian wilderness for a bit. And uh, provided I don't get eaten by bears, I will, uh, you know, return and be back on mic next week. Uh, in the meantime, we've also got a crossover episode with another podcast uh, that's going to be on our Patreon. That's in the tank. So uh, look out for that at patreon.com slash us. But uh, yeah, the midterms, I mean, <laughs> they're going to be, it's going to be bad for the Democratic Party. Uh, I think that's more or less my prediction. Um, I mean, I think, uh, you know, perhaps we've talked about this before, but, you know, I think the conventional wisdom or the received wisdom on the midterms has kind of shifted back and forth a bit. I mean, the midterm elections are usually not kind to whichever party holds the White House. Uh, I think that was the general assumption. Biden had a very low approval rating. Then this summer, um, obviously, there was the overturning of Roe versus Wade. Biden passed the Inflation Reduction Act. There was a feeling that after, you know, 18 months or so of stagnation. The administration reclaimed some momentum. Things were going to be going better. I think that's very much shifted, you know, since the summer. Things have kind of gone from bad to worse for the Democrats. I think it would be an absolute miracle if they held the House of Representatives. And at this point, I expect them to lose the Senate as well. I mean, there's a few races that are particularly close. I dove into Ohio's Senate race this week for Jacobin, which actually shouldn't even really be close. But um, Tim Ryan, who's a sort of unusual kind of, I don't know, workerist liberal, he's running there and he's running a campaign that is not getting a lot of help from the National Democratic Party, and he's sort of running somewhat independently of them and their messaging as well. I, I expect he'll lose by a couple points to J.D. Vance, but um, John Fetterman in Pennsylvania, I think, has a chance of uh, getting over the line. I mean, it's unbelievable to think that Raphael Warnick might actually lose to Herschel Walker in Georgia, but I would say uh, slight lean to Herschel Walker at the moment. Anyway, there's a lot of close races. Nevada is also close. Arizona. These could break for the Democrats. I think more likely a few of them will break for the Democrats and a few of them will flip. Uh, in either case, uh, I think the chances for the Democrats to hold on to the Senate are, uh, are pretty marginal. And I do think a certain amount of this is, you know, self-inflicted. I mean, you know, Bernie Sanders was asked recently, you know, he, he's, he's been doing his own kind of tour ahead of the midterms. And, uh, you know, he's very much been emphasizing the standard Bernie Sanders kind of message, very kind of economic message. Uh, polls, incidentally, uh, do say that the economy is first and foremost on the minds of voters as an issue. Uh, he was asked recently about how well the Democrats were doing and selling their message to working class voters. And he said, I think they're doing rather poorly. It is rather amazing to me what we have as a situation right now, which I hope to change, where according to poll after poll, the American people look more favorably upon the Republicans in terms of economic issues than they do Democrats. That is absurd. Um, I mean, Bernie, I think, you know, rightly incredulous at the end there. I don't I don't know if it's absurd in, in a different sense. I mean, I don't know if it's absurd that the Republicans seem to be winning the economic argument, given the fact that the Democrats are just kind of they're not really anywhere on this stuff. I mean, they have uh, as a pretty concerted strategy tried to run on 
you know, democracy and January 6th and the, the midterms being a referendum on those things and being a referendum on Donald Trump. You know, if you look at where they've allocated their ad dollars as well, a lot of that has gone to that message and Republicans are just blowing them out of the water in terms of um, ads about inflation and, and pocketbook issues and that sort of thing. Um, the Democrats have also, you know, ahead of these midterms when the primaries were happening, they spent a lot of money through super PACs to boost far-right MAGA 2020 election-denying candidates on the grounds that these people would be easier to beat. And so uh, I guess we'll find out on Tuesday whether or not that was actually the case. So yeah, predictions, uh, it'll be bad. A fair amount of that, you know, the Democrats bear some responsibility for it. Uh, how much of that responsibility they bear, uh, I suppose, is up for some debate. I've also been thinking about what will happen if they do lose. And I mean, here, I think that there's a chance that we will see a lot of Biden's kind of worst instincts come out. You know, the side of Biden, which for the majority of his career has sort of liked to make, you know, bipartisan deals for their own sake. I'm worried we're going to see that come out again and, you know, a very, uh, you know, a sharp pivot to the right from the Biden White House as a result hasn't happened yet. It's not inevitable. I certainly hope it doesn't happen. But I was getting very bad vibes the past few days as uh, people like Obama go out and stump for Democratic candidates. And, you know, Obama uh, in particular, I've seen him uh, deliver the message that, you know, the, to my fellow Democrats, you know, sulking and moping is not an option. And I don't know, this this, <laughs> this has not boded well. This has not been auspicious in the past. I don't think that's going to be a good message to inspire people to turn out. I think sort of scolding people and telling them to deal with with it when inflation is running rampant and, you know, the Fed is getting ready to uh, trigger a recession and lower people's living standards because, you know, this is what neoliberal orthodoxy says you do to fight inflation and because Biden decided to keep Trump's appointee as chairman of the Fed. Um, I don't know. None of this bodes uh, very well. So, you know, when he was running for president back in 2019, Biden made these comments about how he actually thinks it's better when no one party controls the government, has unified control of the government. He said, I'm really worried that no party should have too much power. You need a countervailing force. You can't have such a dominant influence that you start to abuse that power. So I guess, uh, you know, in a few days he may get his wish and uh, with probably pretty terrifying consequences. So you don't share the optimistic predictions of patron saint of the podcast, Michael Moore, who has been getting a lot of media hits lately with his uh, bullish predictions for a blue wave victory in the coming days. I mean, is that is that the call? Yeah, he has been getting a lot of media hits because you'll recall he had the prescient. I mean, Michael Moore says a lot of things. He makes a lot of predictions. Uh, so he's kind of got every base covered. But uh, you'll recall that in 2016, he took the possibility of a Trump victory more seriously than some of his colleagues in the media. Now he's trying to position this as I was right once before, and now now I'll be right again. Women are going to show up in droves. Minorities are going to show up in droves. We're going to get a blue victory. Well, I guess we'll know in a few days time, possibly, uh, you know, to all of you listening at home, perhaps you'll be listening to this. I'll be out in the wilderness, not knowing that uh, when I come back, I'll have to eat my words. Tony Stark makes you feel he's a cool exec with a heart of steel. And Iron Man all gets a place. He's well, we do have a movie to talk about, but before we get to that, I just have a little bit of news from the cultural sphere. There are a couple of exciting filmmakers at work today, and their names are the Russo brothers. They made Avengers Endgame, uh, Avengers Infinity War. They also made, um, God, what the hell was the movie called? The, the Gray Man, that Netflix movie with Ryan, um, with one, with one of the Ryans. Uh, you're asking the wrong guy, my man. Anyway, they are two of probably the most successful filmmakers <laughs> ever. I, I mean, just in terms of like, if you weigh the money, they are up there with Spielberg and Lucas. And uh, they've been in the news this week because, well, first of all, the reason they're in the news is because they're making a remake of Hercules for Disney, which they say will be TikTok inspired. It's uh, one of them, I, I believe it's Joe Russo said, I've got four kids, so I can identify Gen Z's habits pretty accurately. They don't have the same emotional connection to watching things in a theater. 
He goes on to say, There are questions about how you translate it as a musical. Audiences today, they've been trained by TikTok, right? What is their expectation of what a musical looks and feels like? That can be a lot of fun and help us push the boundaries a little bit on how you execute a modern musical. Now, look, it's none of my business what Gen Z wants in a modern musical. It's none of my business what Joe Russo wants in a musical. They can have whatever they want. But what did bother me, what I found remarkably depressing was further on in the article, Joe Russo says, you know, while he hopes theatrical distribution thrives, uh, he said, I've had conversations with the folks at Disney recently. They have the same philosophy, that we're headed towards the digital future that allows them to access their audiences anywhere, at any time, with any of their assets. Whether we like it or not, the advent of AI, the advent of three-dimensional projectors that don't require glasses, the advent of deepfakes, everything that's coming is going to transition the face of media as we know it. And we're interested in turning the car towards that. <laughs> Long live the new flesh. <laughs> he goes on to say, filmmaking is going to transform into some other medium. I don't know what that media is going to be. My guess is that when you can sit in your house, turn to one of the actors that is standing in front of you and say, hey, Tom Cruise, hold on a second. Tell me about how you filmed that scene and the AI-fueled Tom Cruise can turn to you and start explaining, it's over at that point, Right. That's when technology will dominate, and whatever new form of storytelling is coming. So those are his bold predictions for the future, that, that like cinema, film uh, will, will sort of turn into this like all-encompassing, uh, deep fake, uh, it's in your brain, it's in your eyes, uh, Tom Cruise is there. Yeah, I, I like how much of that sounded like a threat. Um, I mean, what, what, what other things can the hologram uh, Tom Cruise do? I, you know, I, I was thinking that. Like, are there, are there certain, like, <laughs> payment plans that you can get? <laughs> I don't have a great point to all this except to say that um, I, I don't like it. It's bad. And uh, I don't I don't like the smiling face of this this fucking bureaucrat, this hired hand who directs the 20 minutes of dialogue scenes between the CGI in the comic book movies. <laughs> yeah, between the between the like, you know, 15 glorified music videos strewn together that we now call like a movie. Right, right. All those scenes that, you know, various sweatshops of CGI laborers are working 18 hours a day on computer. <laughs> computers over over in Vancouver, you know, with probably some guy with a megaphone and a whip keeping them in line. Like, yeah, this is our version of like the process that built the pyramids, except it's like a million software engineers like doing like the trillion lines of code to make the tree in Guardians of the Galaxy do a soy face. You know, if the kids want their TikTok Hercules, that's one thing. Uh, the entertainment landscape is large. There's much space on the big buffet for everyone. But to have this fucking bureaucrat come and say, well, listen, we may not like it. I, I don't even like it. But uh, the car is headed towards the CGI Tom Cruise who will give you a back rub and uh, Disney shaping your brain so that it remembers to auto renew the subscription. You know, I, I, I don't like it. I look at that guy and I say, OK, well, do you want to be part of the solution or do you want to be the human embodiment of the problem? Yeah, I mean, it's very much a, there is no alternative, but applied to culture instead of the economy. I mean, yeah, it's it's an, it's amazing to hear somebody talk that way and sort of say this is where the car is headed and sort of talk about it like not only is it inevitable development, but this is like it's a bold new frontier as well. I mean, I have to say I'm pretty skeptical about the, the possibility of that. You know, there's uh, obviously a lot going on in the world right now to be, uh, you know, upset about a lot of stuff to do with big tech. And, you know, one particular big tech overlord in particular, you know, which is sending off very bad vibes. But I'll tell you one thing, which both doesn't surprise me and also makes me quite happy, which is the, you know, collapse of, well, the apparent collapse, the ongoing collapse of the metaverse as a concept. I mean, just Facebook is hemorrhaging tons and tons of money. I saw yesterday as well, there was this big NFT convention in London, which uh, London, England, this is, which was nearly completely empty. I mean, you know, it's possible that the next attempt to do this to sort of um, commodify digital 
space in a more comprehensive way. Maybe the next one will be savvier. But I certainly think the experience over the past few years with things like the metaverse and NFTs and the collapse or, or partial collapse of the cryptocurrency market suggests that uh, right now the means don't really exist for this to be much more than a kind of um, speculative uh, utopian fantasy of tech oligarchs and uh, venture capitalists. And I suspect and hope that that will be true of uh, culture as well. Yeah, I think there is comfort to be had from the idea that, I mean, no matter how many Russo brothers get out there and tell you that you better buckle up and get on your knees because this is the way the card is headed. um, I guess there's comfort to be derived from the possibility that actually maybe a bad idea really is a bad idea. (laughs) And and if if something looks like nobody would enjoy it, then maybe (laughs) nobody actually will. I mean, here, here's a question about this. I mean, you know, he mentioned in that thing that you quoted something about Gen Zers not having the same attachment to you know, going to a movie theater. And I, you know, I certainly think that's true. But I mean, mm-hmm. how many big decisions and, and kind of uh, plans were made by people who've got their hands on kind of the, you know, cultural and economic steering mechanisms of our uh, civilization? How many decisions like that that were made in the context of a pandemic where people were staying home and where the you know, the conditions around the pandemic uh, were assumed to be sort of semi-permanent. How much of it do you think is just that? Because when I hear, oh, movie theaters are, are dead, which I guess that's not exactly what he said. You know, to me, it, it sounds like it has shades of that. And I don't think that's actually true. I think there's a huge amount of that. But then I also think the pandemic um, for certain businesses and certain industries represented an opportunity. I mean, a company like Disney doesn't necessarily like having to pay 40% of its box office revenue to theater owners. A company like Disney would much rather everybody subscribe to its streaming service. When a Russo brother is carted out to talk about the way the winds are blowing, it's not necessarily like a grassroots phenomena that he's reporting on. It's often a top-down, you know, it, it's business decisions that are being made. But, you know, in a moment ago, you were talking about uh, how there are many important things to be concerned about. And in our home base of Ontario, there is a very important thing to be concerned about, which is the CUPE strike. Yeah, so this is, uh, I don't know, I, I would be astonished if this wasn't the biggest labor story uh, in Canada of the year. And it's very significant. Uh, it's been surprising, I think, on a number of fronts, particularly because the union involved, the uh Canadian Union of Public Employees uh, in Ontario representing, in this case, I mean, they represent tons of workers, but in this case, about 55,000 librarians, custodians, uh, school support staff, early childhood educators at public schools across Ontario. Uh, They'd been in bargaining with the provincial government. So this is uh, the provincial government of Premier Doug Ford re-elected with a larger majority a few months ago in an election that had the lowest voter turnout in the uh, province's history. Turnout, I think, rivaled only by low turnouts in the 19th century before the franchise was universal. The union membership gave the bargaining team an overwhelming strike mandate, I think something like 96% uh, early in October. And uh, the government basically walked away from the negotiations and um, tried to order them back to work. Um, Now, the right to strike is constitutionally protected in Canada as per a Supreme Court ruling, 5-2 Supreme Court ruling made in 2015. 15. But the Ford government picking up a theme which will be familiar to listeners everywhere, and I think American listeners in particular, uh, the Ford government just decided to kind of dispense with all precedent and do whatever it could to get its way. In this case, they've said that they're going to use something called the notwithstanding clause to override the provision in the charter, which guarantees the right to strike. And they've been uh, using the notwithstanding clause pretty willy nilly over the last couple of years, basically, as the name says it's a clause that was introduced so that provincial governments can say, okay, notwithstanding the Canadian Constitution, we're going to do this. That's right. So Canada's Constitution, um, its current Constitution, dates from uh, the early 1980s. And this came out of very convoluted process around that, where the federal government was trying to get, uh, this is what is under Pierre Trudeau, was trying to get 
the provinces to sign on, and a number of Western provinces, like Alberta and Saskatchewan, wanted this clause inserted because, you know, in Canada, uh, you know, it's, <laughs> I can't remember who said it, but somebody once said in Canada, we don't have political theory, we have debates about federal and provincial jurisdiction. And um, it was very much the case in the charter negotiations, constitutional negotiations. The position of, uh, you know, several of the provinces was basically, we don't want a constitutional arrangement that gives the federal government excessive power. So Canada is a very decentralized country already. And this created a situation where the Charter of Rights and Freedoms comes with a, a sort of loophole that allows certain clauses to be overridden for a five-year term. Now, the federal government, in theory, can disallow these things. Justin Trudeau has said that he is not going to do that. And it's up to the people themselves to uh, fight provincial governments that they don't like. Now, this clause exists. It, it, it actually has rarely been used. And it's, uh, you know, it had never been used in Ontario until Doug Ford came along. He's also threatened to use it without actually using it. I mean, just the threat to use it when it's never been used before has been in the past sufficient. But the union, to its immense credit, basically said, you can do back to work legislation and we're just going to go on strike anyway. So they walked off the job on Friday. Um, they've said the strike is going to continue indefinitely. I mean, their demands are eminently reasonable. If anything, I think they're quite conservative. The members of this union earn an average of just $39,000 a year. That's 39000 Canadian dollars. So I don't know what that is in US dollars. I mean, it would be like, I don't know, 30000 or or possibly even less. It's not a lot of money. Uh, they've been asking for an 11% pay increase, and the Ford government's response was basically to offer a 2% raise uh, with cuts to sick pay in exchange. And bear in mind, this is while well, inflation is running at 6 or 7%. So effectively, the Ford government's counteroffer was for them to accept a pay cut in real terms. So the union has been picketing every day. Uh, they've gotten a lot of support. They've gotten support, importantly, from other unions, including, I think, quite notably Leona, which is a major construction union and is one of the unions that has been really central to Doug Ford's pitch to rebrand the conservatives as a sort of pro-worker, pro-blue collar party. So they've condemned the government very strongly. The government is uh, threatening the union and threatening to fine individual members and the union itself. If you tally up the various fines that are implicit in this bill that they're uh, forcing through the legislature, it could amount to $200 million, $220 million per day that the union remains on strike. They've insisted they're going to remain on strike. There does feel like there's uh, something in the air a little bit. There's thousands of transit workers going on strike tomorrow. They have their own issues. It's not a wildcat strike or a, or a solidarity strike or anything like that, although there is talk about that, particularly, I think, from um, some other unions that uh, represent teaching assistants and uh, other educational workers at uh, post-secondary institutions and things like that. Anyway, by the time this comes out, who knows? Uh, things may have changed. Those are the facts on the ground right now. I'm not really sure how to conclude this, so I will leave the uh, last word to the Brock University labor historian, Larry Savage. Uh, no relation, by the way. Um, he tweeted a few days ago, counting on the courts to protect labor rights was always risky, but if governments are going to start using the notwithstanding clause to override charter rights, legal strategies become even less effective for the movement. Political action is the way forward. I think that about sums it up. This is about a movie about a couple of killers. Harry Callahan and a homicidal maniac. The one with the badge is Harry. There were a lot of reasons they called him Dirty Harry. And he kept inventing new ones. Well, our movie on this episode is 1971's Dirty Harry, starring Clint Eastwood. Another one of those long-time coming films. Uh, a movie that is, I would say, aside from maybe Birth of a Nation, the ultimate, the quintessential American reactionary film. Certainly the American reactionary film for the second half of the 20th century. It feels like all roads lead to this one. 
And also, uh, it rocks. It's uh, super fun. What do you think? Well, I do think it, it definitely belongs to you know a canon of sort of right wing Law and Order movies we've talked about on this show. Um, you know, we've talked about various, I think, Steven Seagal movies. Um, you know, the Death Wish series. We've done at least one film from that. It's certainly better than those. I mean, I thought it was reasonably entertaining. I didn't. I didn't think it's, it was a bad movie, but I think. <laughs> I think it is a movie that partakes in just about every cop movie cliche you can imagine uh, because it was actually uh, responsible for inventing a lot of those tropes and cliches. And I did find it at times a little hard to get beyond that. I mean, it's got <laughs> it's got everything. It's got a, a rugged individualist masculine hero who uh, takes, uh, should we say, no guff from anyone. Uh, it has a moral universe that is structured almost entirely or entirely around there being a hard binary between good and evil and a thin blue line between those two categories. It has essentially zero female characters who aren't, I think, either victims or secretaries. And I think uh, this is my favorite part. Uh, it has several scenes in which, you know, our all-American hero stares down the pernicious forces of social and cultural liberalism as embodied by various Democratic Party, San Francisco politicians, Berkeley law professors, and that kind of thing. So yeah, it's got it all. Well, I was eager to revisit the movie this week because I've been reading Quentin Tarantino's new book, Cinema Speculation which is a collection of essays that he's written about movies of the 1970s, mostly movies that he saw as a kid at movie theaters. You know, the book indulges in a lot of origin myth-making about himself. I mean, it would be too much to say that Tarantino's new book has a thesis exactly. It's basically a series of essays where he sort of talks about these movies. It's almost as if like he spoke into a microphone about all these movies until he ran out and this is what we got. Like, I genuinely don't think I've seen so many typos in a book it, that was published by a major publisher. It's incredible. <laughs> and I do kind of like the book, by the way, I should say that. But so one of the movies he talks about, I assume, is uh, is this one. Yes. And his essay about this movie is typical of the books because it goes all over the place. It begins with a lengthy appreciation of the director of the film, Don Siegel. Then it goes to talk about the making of the film, and then it goes into the politics of the film and the various debates that swirled around it. I'll just read a little bit of what Tarantino writes, which I think sets up the stakes of the moral universe. He writes, One of the most memorable taglines for a modern movie at that time was the one that sold Dennis Hopper's Easy Rider. A man went looking for America and he couldn't find it anywhere. A great line, but it wasn't true. If he responded to Hopper's Billy the Kid or Fonda's Captain America, rather than the ugly rednecks at the cafe, you didn't have to seek out representation. It was all over music, movies, TV, and magazines. On the other hand, the generation that fought World War II in the 40s and bought homes in the suburbs in the 50s were the ones who went looking for their America and couldn't find it anywhere. What Richard Nixon called the silent majority were frightened. Frightened of an America they didn't recognize and a society they couldn't understand. Youth culture had taken over pop culture. If you were under 35, that was a good thing. But if you were older, maybe not. Many people back then watched the news in abject horror. Hippies, militant black power groups, killer cults that brainwashed suburban kids to drop acid and rise up and kill their parents. Young men, the sons of veterans, burning their draft cards or fleeing to Canada. Your children calling your policemen pigs, violent street crime, the emergence of the serial killer phenomenon, drug culture, free love, the nudity, violence, and profanity of the films of the new Hollywood, Woodstock, Altamont, Stonewall, <laughs> Cielo Drive. To many Americans, it was a mosaic that scared the shit out of them. This was the audience that Dirty Harry was made for. <laughs> Sounds awful. Maybe someone should try to make America great again. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's impossible to talk about the critical reception to Dirty Harry without talking about Pauline Kael's review of it in The New Yorker, which was and remains probably the definitive uh, liberal take on the film. She wrote, and I'll read from this briefly, Dirty Harry is not one of those ambivalent, you-can-read-it-either-way jobs like the French Connection. Inspector Harry Callahan is not a Popeye, pork-pie-hatted and lewd and boorish. He's soft-spoken Clint Eastwood. 
six feet four of lean, tough saint, blue-eyed and shaggy-haired, with a rugged, creased, careworn face that occasionally breaks into a mischief-filled Shirley MacLaine grin. He's the best there is, a Camelot cop, courageous and incorruptible, and the protector of women and children, or at least he would be if the law allowed him to be. But the law coddles criminals. It gives them legal rights that cripple the police. And so the only way that Dirty Harry, the dedicated troubleshooter who gets the dirtiest assignments, can protect the women and children of the city is to disobey orders. And uh, kind of the money shot of her review is, Dirty Harry is obviously just a genre movie, but this action genre has always had fascist potential, and it has finally surfaced. If crime were caused by super-evil dragons, there would be no Miranda, no Escobedo. We would all be licensed to kill, like Dirty Harry. But since crime is caused by deprivation, misery, psychopathology, and social injustice, Dirty Harry is a deeply immoral movie. Yeah, I agree with the last part of that very strongly. I mean, in this movie, criminality is not a social phenomenon at all. It's a vibe. You know, like that's that's the conception of crime that's channeled through this movie. Now, the good news is that this movie came out in 1971 and in the ensuing decades, in response to all these concerns, uh, untold billions of dollars were poured into uh, police departments, you know, outfitting them with tanks and automatic weapons and all these uh, all these pernicious laws that lib judges put on the books. Uh, those were those were stripped away. And, you know, crime as a, a political issue, you know, its salience has completely evaporated. <laughs> um, in, uh, in in American politics. You know, there, there haven't been any ads about it in these midterms at all, or about it being at an all-time high when it's actually quite low in historical terms. Well, getting into the story of the film, the film is set in that modern-day Sodom, San Francisco, and the main character is indeed dirty Harry Callahan, played by Clint Eastwood. We get a sense of his philosophy in an early scene when he's on the way out of a meeting being being given a talking to by the chief. The, the chief alludes to an earlier incident in which Harry used excessive force and, and didn't, didn't exactly play by the rules. And Harry says, when an adult male is chasing a female with intent to commit rape, I shoot the bastard. That's my policy. The chief asks, intent, how do you establish that? Well, a naked man is chasing a woman through an alley with a butcher knife and a hard-on. I figure he isn't out collecting for the Red Cross. That more or less uh, sums up Harry's philosophy, you know? You've got crime. It's obvious. It's staring you right in the face. So what are we bothering with all this stuff for? Now, I'm not sure it's the police chief that he has that conversation with. I think it might even be the mayor. I mean, it's easy oh, to get yes, the scenes yes. confused because there's so many scenes where, you know, some uh, some bureaucrat or other is telling him what he needs to do and he's just having none of it. And that is pretty much the message of the movie is that there are mushy lib politicians and bureaucrats and courts and, you know, elite justice professors and such. And um, they're the reason that uh, crime is out of control. Notably, the plot of this movie hangs on a serial killer uh, who uses a sniper rifle and kind of kills people indiscriminately, uh, who I think was modeled on the Zodiac Killer or kind of loosely based on the Zodiac Killer. And uh, the mayor, uh, his first instinct is, well, the guy wants money. Uh, let's just give him some money to, to go away. That's all we can do. Harry Callahan, who takes no guff from anybody, is not having any of it. You're going to get yourself another bag, man. The most famous scene of the movie happens early on. Harry goes for a hot dog at uh, the local Greasy Spoon, and out of the corner of his eye, he notices a suspicious vehicle in front of the bank. Well, sure enough, he accurately predicts the robbery. He gets out there, he, he blasts all three of the robbers. Uh, one of them is laying on the ground wounded, and, well, why don't we just drop in the clip? I know what you're thinking. Did he fire six shots or only five? Well, to tell you the truth in all this excitement, I've kind of lost track myself. But Ian, this is a 44 Magnum, the most powerful handgun in the world, and would blow your head clean off. You've got to ask yourself one question. Do I feel lucky? Well, do you, punk? So that's the uh, the oft quoted and often misquoted line, you know, often quoted as "Are you feeling lucky, punk?" Which uh, does not actually appear in the movie, but I guess it's still uh, the the essence of it. This scene coming so early in the movie is very important for a lot of reasons, not least of which is you know everybody who's seen the movie, everybody who's talked about the movie from a political angle knows that all three of the robbers are black. 
Now, the movie is, I guess you could say, smart enough to immediately follow this scene with a scene where Harry is being bandaged up at police headquarters by a kindly black doctor who's on staff. And there are various other scenes in the movie where uh, Harry interacts with ordinary black citizens in San Francisco. But, you know, race is never not a factor here. Uh, The politics are kind of like on those episodes of uh, Steven Seagal Lawman, where, you know, by day he's uh, hanging out, giving Aikido lessons at the local New Orleans. Playing the blues. Yeah, yeah. But but at night he's out going after the bad guys who always seem to be of a certain shade. Shortly after that early scene, Harry is assigned a new rookie partner, Chico Gonzalez, Harry is incensed. He doesn't have time to break in a new partner. Yeah, especially especially a college boy with a friggin' sociology degree. A sociology degree. Well, I hope hope that sociology degree doesn't get you killed. The two of them end up having an okay relationship. Harry may seem gruff on the outside, but that's armor that he's erected because he sees what really happens. Uh, There's a scene about halfway through the movie where he sees the body of a 10-year-old boy whose face was shot right off. We don't see the damage, but we see Harry and Chico's reactions to it. And in a scene like that, you know, the point is Harry has seen the darkness. He lives in the darkness. Chico hasn't lived in the darkness. That's why Harry is the way he is. He's not racist. Oh, God, no, he's not. He's not racist. He hates everybody equally because he knows that the darkness is everywhere and comes for everybody. As you mentioned, the main antagonist of the film is uh, the the Scorpio killer. Well, I disagree. I think actually the main antagonist is social and cultural liberalism, and he's just a manifestation (laughs) of uh, the permissive atmosphere those two things have created. Well, okay, you're, you're right. But then also, isn't it interesting that the killer is given sort of a reactionary dimension himself? I mean, there's that early scene where the mayor is reading one of his ransom notes and it has the N-word in it. And of course, we're supposed to disapprove of that. That's supposed to be very bad. And then there's another scene where the killer is on top of a roof and in the crosshairs of his sniper is a young gay couple. And basically, we are supposed to be on the gay couple's side, I think. Tarantino, in his book, writes extensively about how a lot of people in the movie theater were like jeering the gay couple uh, at the time. But but nevertheless, I, I genuinely think that we're supposed to not want him to kill that couple. And his sort of uh, reactionary targeting of them is intended to add complication to his character and add complication to, you know, what is otherwise a pretty strictly right-wing movie. The director of the film is Don Siegel, who directed many of Clint Eastwood's best early movies. He was reportedly a liberal. He made a number of basically liberal movies. One of his best movies was a thriller called Riot in Cell Block 11 from 1958, which the Criterion Collection put out on Blu-ray. And that was a movie that was in favor of prison reform. He also made the original Invasion of the Body Snatchers, which has been interpreted as both a Red Scare allegory and an anti-Red Scare allegory. He was a very skillful director. He knew how to edit. He knew how to use humor. He knew how and when to shock an audience. Andrew Saris wrote in his book, The American Cinema, the final car chase in the lineup and the final shootout in Madigan are among the most stunning displays of action movie montage in the history of American cinema. And by the way, personally, I think the phone booth scene in Dirty Harry is on a comparable level, just in terms of editing and staging. But the point is, you know, he wasn't an ideologue. He knew the effectiveness of making something complicated. And I'm in no way arguing that, like, Dirty Harry is anything other than a right-wing movie. But the reason that it's a better class of right-wing movie than the sort that we often see on this podcast is because it had a guy like that in the director's chair. I mean, the fact that the movie ends on a kind of weirdly downbeat note rather than than the triumphant note that you might expect from like a a Steven Seagal movie, 
the fact that certain of the scenes with Harry, like, torturing the killer play out in the sort of uncomfortable way they do. That's, I think, the work of Don Siegel more than anyone. Right. Um, so in the in the final scene, uh, you know, spoiler, Callahan finally tracks down uh, Scorpio, who he's had a number of encounters with and also been badly uh, injured himself by. He tracks him down uh, after he hijacks a bus full of school children. And he does the uh, do you feel lucky punk shtick again, except uh, this time the revolver still has a bullet left in it. And uh, Harry Callahan, as you might expect, gets the job done. But as Will says, the film doesn't end on a triumphant note. He uh, takes his badge out of his pocket. Um, He's next to a body of water. He looks at his badge and uh, he casts it away into the water. His San Francisco PD badge and then walks off and the credits roll. And I guess that's meant to symbolize that, you know, he's he can't even uh, be a cop anymore because he's not really allowed to do his job. He knows that he's probably broken the law by killing this absolutely, uh, you know, heinous sociopathic criminal. And so he would rather turn in his badge than uh, be part of such an institution. Yeah, we don't really get a moment to relish his victory exactly, although it's clear that it, he is victorious. I want to double back just a little bit and mention the scene that leads up to this, probably the funniest scene in the movie, unintentionally. It's after Scorpio has kidnapped a 14-year-old girl. He's written a very sexualized ransom note about her, threatened to torture her, put the police through a whole rigmarole of delivering the ransom money. Finally, the 14-year-old girl's body is found, and there's a really shocking and upsetting scene of her dead, naked body being pulled out of the sewer. So then there's quite a bit more action with Harry trying to nab the Scorpio. Uh, He finally does, but then he's called into, I'm forgetting exactly which authority figure's office, whether it's the chief or the mayor or the district attorney or somebody else, but he's called into an authority figure office and they explain where the hell does it say you've got a right to kick down doors torture suspects deny medical attention and legal counsel where have you been i mean that man had rights you're lucky i'm not indicting you for assault with intent to commit murder what where the hell does it say you've got a right to kick down doors torture suspects deny medical attention and legal counsel where have you been does escobedo ring a bell miranda I mean, you must have heard of the Fourth Amendment. What I'm saying is that man had rights. Well, I'm all broken up about that man's rights. You should be. I've got news for you, Callahan. As soon as he's well enough to leave the hospital, he walks. What are you talking about? He's free. You mean you're letting him go? We have to. We can't try him. And why is that? Because I'm not wasting a half a million dollars of the taxpayer's money on a trial we can't possibly win. The problem is we don't have any evidence. Evidence? What the hell do you call that? I call it nothing. Zero. Are you trying to tell me that ballistics can't match the bullet up to this rifle? It does not matter what ballistics can do. This rifle might make a nice souvenir, but it's inadmissible as evidence. And who says that? It's the law. And so the killer just walks free and he walks free to, you know, uh, kidnap that bus full of school children because, you know, that's uh, that's who he is. He's a thrill killer, basically. He has no real reason for killing except uh, that it's fun. The unintentionally funniest scene in the movie is the one where uh, he gets the lecture from the other cop and from the uh, the judge that (laughs) uh, uh, what I'm saying is the man has rights. They could not possibly be laying it on thicker. The, The only thing they're not doing is saying, listen. We love criminals. We want criminals to get out there. In fact, but I mean, they basically are saying that. (laughs) Now, it should be said that, as I understand it, the script for this movie and even the casting went through many incarnations before arriving at what it ultimately became. Uh, Various other people were offered the part before Clint Eastwood was offered it, including John Wayne, Frank Sinatra, Burt Lancaster, I think, Robert Mitchum, Steve McQueen. The script was also uh, drafted many, many times, including once by Terrence Malick. And in his version, um, (laughs) apparently the shooter was going to be a vigilante who murdered white-collar criminals who'd escaped justice. I think that would have been a better movie. I mean, I don't know. If it had been a Terrence Malick movie, I assume there would have been lots of cutaways to, like, I don't know, shots of nature with sort of, like, wounded insects and birds and things like that. There would have been a sort of, uh, you know, deep, deep metaphysics at play. 
I guess Terrence Malick must have taken uh, some of the same ideas for when he made Badlands, which is another film we should watch on the show. You mentioned Frank Sinatra. I think the version with Frank Sinatra, at least according to Tarantino, was the one that came closest to getting made. He was actually signed to do it, but he had a wrist injury that prevented him from really being able to handle the gun. I mean, can you imagine we were we were that close to not just film history, but but history itself being so different. I haven't mentioned this yet, but I mean, if he couldn't handle the gun, it's because uh, the film, you know, which reminds us over and over again, the gun is a 44 Magnum, folks, okay? This is the most powerful handgun in existence. I think the specific make of the gun is mentioned at least three times, and every time Eastwood is talking about it, he does so with a kind of loving caress in his voice as he points this very phallic uh, firearm at Paging uh, Dr. Freud. (laughs) Before we go, I'll just read a little bit more from Tarantino's book. He says, there's been a lot of speculation over the years whether or not Harry Callahan is a racist character or Dirty Harry is a racist film or both. In Charles Higgins' book, Celebrity Circus, the author interviewed both Eastwood and Siegel on the set of Dirty Harry. Siegel described Eastwood's character as a racist son of a bitch who blames everything on the blacks and the Hispanics. Well, This is Tarantino again. The character Siegel's describing is not the character in the movie he made. In the film, Harry may be politically incorrect, but he's not a racist son of a bitch. The film would be better, or at least more serious, if he was. But then it would be Taxi Driver. Which, even more than the Cobra clones to follow, is the real bastard stepchild of Dirty Harry and Death Wish. But it's doubtful if Dirty Harry could ever work as potently as it does if it dared challenge its character to that degree. The artistry of Siegel's picture is in its creative, provocative effectiveness. Harry is a great character. Scorpio is a great character. The story really works. It's a movie you can really watch dozens of times, but it's the sleek execution of a genre master that makes it sing. Now, uh, I'll just say, uh, I guess I do agree with Tarantino's ultimate conclusion there. I mean, um, you know, Harry is kind of a great character and uh, a genre master does give sleek execution. But... What, I, what I'm just not sure is why that conclusion needs the premise that he gives it, because I don't agree <laughs> I, with I, the premise I at know. all. Why can't you just I, I say know. it works on the level of filmmaking, but it's reactionary as hell? I mean, that just seems like very tortured kind of nuance mongering to me. Yeah, it seems this desperation to sort of redeem something just because you like it, you know, just because you like it and because it works on a certain level, you want to have to redeem it on all levels, which is unfortunate and speaks to uh, certain of the flaws in Tarantino's book, although not all of them. The last thing I want to say on this is the sequel to Dirty Harry, and there were four sequels to this movie. Callahan did not stay off the force for long, folks. Uh, In Magnum Force, it actually goes politically the opposite direction. In that movie, which I haven't seen in over a decade, so I could be remembering elements of it wrong, but in that movie, Harry finds himself up against a team of rogue cops from within the police force who are basically playing judge, jury, and executioner on people. And Harry makes the liberal case in that film that, uh, you know, we, we need due process and that kind of thing. I know that Eastwood himself, basically for his entire career, was very bothered by Pauline Kael's review of Dirty Harry, as well as pretty much all of his movies, I mean, it speaks ill of Clint Eastwood, I think. The quintessential screen tough guy of the second half of the 20th century. And he cares what they're saying in the Lib New Yorker. Very interesting. He's being he's being kept up at night by, by Pauline Kael, you know? But then I'll also say, I realized watching this movie, the reason Clint Eastwood's career since this movie has been interesting is because of this movie. Like, this movie is the original sin. This movie, because it was the one that firmly solidified his stardom and made him represent a certain thing and also became the defining screen embodiment of certain reactionary tendencies in the culture. Everything he's done since then, to some degree or another, has been a reaction to that or a continuation of that. And so, you know, there have been thousands and thousands of words so much ink spilled over the years by highbrow critics 
talking about the secret liberal tendencies of some of his later films like Unforgiven or, well, even maybe the 1517 to Paris or a million other movies that add shading and nuance to the platonic form of Clint Eastwood that was presented in this movie. And this movie is the one that starts it all. Now, I have to say, I'm a little disappointed by what you tell me about the sequels and, you know, the fact that they're at least one of them is not as politically reactionary as Dirty Harry. Because I feel like if this uh, series was true to itself and true to the character, I don't know, in the next movie, you know, he wouldn't go back to the forest, but he'd become a sort of, you know, Christopher Nolan Batman type character where, you know, he's still operating on the side of law and order. He's just doing so outside the uh, confines of the police department because you know, it's too captured by uh, bureaucracy and liberal politicians. And I don't know, a few a few sequels later, if, you know, if the series was accurate to the actual trajectory of a guy like this, I don't know, it'd be the 1990s and he'd go down in a blaze of glory, you know, uh, shooting federal agents who'd laid siege to the militia compound he'd set up. And then if it was really accurate, he'd probably run for governor with Donald Trump's endorsement and win. Now watch this drive. <laughs> I didn't think this was a bad movie. I did think there was some really good sequences and stuff. I, I don't know really what I was expecting, but um, like I understand why it's why it's famous. I guess for me, it was sort of more of a like seven and a half out of 10 as opposed to like an absolute slam dunk. It was I mean, it's way better, obviously, than like Death Wish or, um, you know, I, I mean, I, I think that's the thing. I mean, like it, it's not Taxi Driver. It's not one of the no. really good movies of the 70s, but you know, when I, I was just watching it this time and thinking like, well, this is, I mean, this is just on a filmmaking level, head and shoulders above like any Steven Seagal movie, any fucking like pretty much any of its imitators. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, everything in it is so cliche at this point, <laughs> you know. I do think that was part of what like that formed a barrier um, for me in enjoying it because yeah, like it's just he's the archetypal version of that character who's like, you know, ah, yeah, I don't care about your rights. You see, uh, if I had tried to kill you, your brains would be all over the pavement. See, bucko? <laughs> like, it's just like that kind of, you know, like like the, the chief yelling at him, like, if you get up to any of them hijinks again, the mayor's going to have my ass. Like, it's just <laughs> it's all that kind of thing. Like, I was kind of having fun with some of that stuff. I don't know. <laughs> well, I did think the scene with the like the I mean, I don't know if it came out in, in us like talking about the scene with the judge, like just how funny it actually is. I mean, no, I know he said it's funny, but like the way that scene is shot, it's like he's getting a dressing down from the, you know, from his like uh, superior or whatever, who's sort of saying, ah, you know, you didn't use due process. You're too much of a loose cannon, Harry. And then he's saying, you know, what are you talking about? Like he was out to do he was out to do bad. And I and Harry just sort of gruffly explains that, you know, he was uh, he was just intervening like any good person would to stop the sociopathic criminal. Like, what do you what do you mean he's going to be let out? And then the, his appears just like, well, I just happen to have this lib justice right here who's going to explain it to you. And then there's just like this guy sitting off screen who's like, uh, oh, yeah, uh, you probably violated uh, the 14th, 13th and, you know, the Third Amendment. And he just starts listing off all the, you know, victims rights that have been violated. And it's, and it's funny so funny scene. then that the killer then almost immediately he doesn't just kill people. He abducts a bus full of school children. <laughs> He just waltzes out, abducts a bus full of school children with like no end game. What's the end game to that? What's the strategy? There's there's no strategy. It's just whelp. It really out Willie Horton's Willie Horton. Yeah, this, this is the future liberals want. 